Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 11. So we continue to make our way through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us. Romans chapter 11, we'll be picking up where we left off last week, and that has us in verse 11. A rather challenging section, really a rather challenging set of three chapters um, that, that we have been working our way through as Paul deals with the question of how is it that God's chosen old covenant people, Israel, have rejected their Messiah? What does that mean about God? And Paul has been answering that question for us in stages as we've gone. And so now hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given to us that Lord, through your word, by your spirit, we hear the voice of our God. We, we come to know you. You call even that which is dead to life, blinded eyes to sight, and deaf ears to hearing. I pray, Lord, this morning, by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the great hymn writer William Cooper wrote these well-known words, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Well, Romans chapters 9 through 11 is full of the complexities of this mysterious way of God. We've, we've learned of God's choosing sovereign grace, his hardening of unbelievers. Today, Paul is going to take us deeper still into these mysteries, particularly as we see that even out of God's justice, even out of God's judgment, that God brings salvation. And as we see God's sovereignty, total sovereignty, even over sin to accomplish his good purposes. These are the mysteries that Paul is explaining to us in our verses today. First, that because God is giving justice to the Jews, which they deserve, that out of that, Gentiles are being saved. Salvation is actually coming out of God's justice. And secondly, that through the Gentiles being saved, the Jews are going to be provoked to salvation through jealousy. Paul sums these mysteries up for us later in the chapter. If you look down at verse 30, Paul says, For just as some of you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So Paul speaks to the Gentiles here, 
And he tells them, you were disobedient, and you've actually received mercy from God because of the Jews' disobedience. He tells the Gentiles, that's us, anyone who's not Jewish, you've received salvation because the Jews were judged. In verse 31, then, he says, so they too have now been disobedient in, other, in order that by the mercy shown to you they may receive mercy. So, so Paul says that the Jews are going to see the Gentiles enjoying salvation, enjoying what should have been theirs, and it's going to provoke jealousy in them, and that jealousy is going to lead to salvation. Well, these are mysterious truths. They're, they're mysterious not because Paul's hard to understand here. They're mysterious because... They, they kind of swim against the flow of our human thinking and our human reason. But notice Paul's response in verse 33. What is his response to these realities? What's his response to, to all of this deep truth he's been laying out? In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, full of these difficult truths that Christians have fought over, that Christians resist, he gets to the end of that in verse 33 and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. What's Paul's response? It's not to put his fists up and say, all right, fight me on this. It's worship. He sees the majesty and the sovereignty of God, the bigness of God, and it causes him to worship God. And so as Paul has been explaining to us the current situation with Israel, how they in Paul's day and frankly in our day have rejected their Messiah in, in, in large. It doesn't mean no Jews. Paul's already told us there's a remnant already, and Paul points to himself and says, look, I'm one of them. But, but in a large sense, they have rejected their Messiah. He's been explaining how they find themselves outside the camp as it comes to salvation, and, and he's first pointed to God's sovereignty, the first thing he says is to understand this question, lift your eyes to God who is sovereign over all. He is sovereign even in election, in, in his choosing grace, and he is sovereign even in reprobation, in his hardening of sinners. And then at the same time, Paul has told us, and Israel is 100% responsible for their unbelief. This is what they did. This is not something that God did to them. They are to blame for their rebellion. And so now he presents to us this mysterious paradox of, of God bringing salvation through judgment, of God's own sovereignty over sin. And so let's look first in these first verses at God's salvation coming from justice. There, there's a sociological term called providentialist is basically describing someone who sees the unfolding of history or what we could say God providentially brings to pass and attempts to explain God's motives through that. So I see what's happened and I'm going to determine how God's feeling in the moment because of what I see happening around us. This, friends, is very unwise. It's not something the Bible ever commends for us to do. It really is just trying to assume that God thinks like us. I've seen something that happened, and it was either good in my eyes or bad in my eyes, and so I'm going to determine how God feels about that. One great example is COVID-19. You've heard of COVID-19, I trust. 
right? So, so, so this comes, comes upon our nation, and immediately the voices begin to come out. This is the judgment of God on America. This is why this is happening. It's the judgment of God on America. Now, it happened to the whole world, not just America, but was it the judgment of God on the world? Maybe. Quite, quite likely, in, in, some, in some sense. But what we don't actually know is if we're right about that. We are judging something and we're saying, this is self-evidently bad. It must mean God's mad at us and he's going to do something about it. We don't actually know. That's a providentialist thinking. It's, it's taking our feelings and trying to interpret God based on that. Job's friends are perfect examples of providentialists. Job's friends come to Job and they say, we know exactly, Job, why you're suffering. You've sinned. You're in the wrong, Job. That's why God is, is doing this to you. You must have done something wrong that has provoked God's judgment upon you. Well, that is that kind of thinking. And many Christians, we, we sort of naturally think like that. We take it upon ourselves to be the authoritative interpreters of God's actions in the world. And this leads us to many faulty assumptions of God's motives. Now, why am I talking about this here? Because that's the, the kind of thinking that Paul's addressing in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's addressing these assumptions we make about God. The vast majority of Jews had not trusted in Christ, and this led some of the Gentile Christians to draw conclusions from God's actions. So Paul says, yes, they haven't trusted. Look at the sovereignty of God. God is actually hardening them. He chooses whom he will save. And the Gentiles go, okay, and the Jews are 100% responsible for their unbelief. And the Gentile Christians go, right, so God's done with them. They're out. We're in. That, that's the, the assumption that is being made, that God has, has given up on them, forsaken them. They've decided that the lack of Jewish converts must mean that God is finished with the Jews, that they weren't going to be saved, and what that leads to is, so we don't even have to evangelize them. Let's just stick with our, the other Gentiles. We, we don't even have to worry about them, because God doesn't want them. God, God doesn't need them. We, in fact, we can even marginalize them in society, and even in the church, when there is a Jewish convert, they're sort of second class. We've got a rich history, a rich history of anti-Semitism uh, that has always been a part of the world. And some of it comes from this thinking. And so Paul is going to now draw attention to their ignorance, that ignorant way of thinking, with this simple question, verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That's the Jews. Did the Jews stumble in order that they might fall? Does their sin, in other words, mean that they are irretrievably lost? Was God's whole point here to watch them fall? to wipe them out. As, as God has said of Pharaoh from Egypt of old, and Paul actually referenced that in chapter 9, that where God says, I raised you up, Pharaoh, to make my name known in the world, really by crushing Pharaoh. And the question Paul's asking is, is that what God did with Israel as well? He raised them up so he could crush them and be done with them, wipe them out. And what's Paul's answer to that? He doesn't leave us waiting. His answer is emphatic, by no means. 
This is the tenth time in the book of Romans that Paul has used this expression. It is the strongest possible no. By no means. Look, look then in verse 11 as he continues. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So how does that work? How does salvation come to the Gentiles through the Jewish trespass or through their sin, through their rebellion? He, he's going to tell us later in this chapter that the Jews were branches that were broken off because of their unbelief, broken off of the tree, so that the Gentiles could be grafted into the tree. Israel's unbelief and hardening, their rejection of Christ, caused the gospel to be preached to the non-Jews. That's how their sin led to Gentile salvation. Look at, at Paul's own, own experience um, in the book of Acts. Paul would go into a city. He would go first to the Jewish synagogues and he would preach the gospel to them. They would reject him and maybe try to kill him. And then he would go preach that same gospel message to the Gentiles who received it with gladness and, and there was explosive growth in the church because of the Gentiles. And this isn't some kind of ivory tower philosophical thought that we're talking about this morning when we talk about God's rejection of the Jews leading to, or the Jews' rejection of God leading to, um, leading to the Gentile salvation. We go, well, this is all interesting things that happened in the first century, but how does that affect me on a Tuesday afternoon? This is actually a reality we ought to rejoice in. This should lead us to worship. Gentiles is us. Anyone who's not Jewish, you're a Gentile. He's talking about you right here. We have been grafted in to this tree. We have been brought into to the most amazing story. God making a people for himself. Do you, do you ever sit in a, 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 a watch a movie and, and it pops up on the screen based on a true story and the whole movie you're just thinking, well, I wonder what of this is true and what's made up and we don't know. That this story is true and you've been brought in. All of this is true. You've been brought in. You've been grafted in. Paul's talking about us this morning. The, the author of this story, God, is unchanging. He's immutable. If you come tonight at 5.30, we're talking about the immutability of God. God is unchanging. But the story itself has developed. What we call progressive revelation. We've learned more and more. As we read the Bible from left to right, we learn more and more and more of this revelation of God that's unfolding as God is making a people for himself. It doesn't become something different. The, the, the author has not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, but it develops. The story develops like a, like a fertilized egg turning into a laughing baby. Like when you're, when you're driving towards the mountains and you just first see that little speck on the horizon and then you get a little closer and you're like, these mountains, they don't even look that big. And then the closer you get, you realize they're enormous and immense. This story of God making a people for himself, for his glory, starts out so small. We can't see all the details. We don't know where it's leading. We just see Adam made in the image of God, in the garden. 
And then we see the fall in Genesis 3, and we see that, that Imago Dei, that image of God corrupted and twisted. And then we see Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and the wickedness among man has become so great that God purposes to destroy the whole earth, but saves one family, eight people, Noah and his family, and he makes a covenant. He makes a covenant with all living creatures to never destroy the world in a flood again. And then we come to Abraham, and a more specific covenant is made. Abraham, you'll become a great nation. I'm going to give you and your offspring a land. It's going to be yours forever. Even more, your descendants will be my chosen people. We see increasing specifics as the story grows and grows and grows, but then generations passed and Abraham's descendants become slaves in Egypt, and we see Moses come to lead the people out of slavery into the land God had promised, and God makes another more specific covenant. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This story becomes more and more specific. I'm not just following this line out. Now you, people, out of everyone on the whole earth, you're mine. You're mine in a special way. You're, I treasure you in a, in a special, in a unique way. And then David comes along in yet another more specific covenant. I will put one of your descendants on the throne, David, forever. And Solomon comes and builds the temple, but because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they are led into exile. God uses the language of divorce and tells them the covenant is thoroughly broken. You have abandoned me. Eventually, the people return from exile to the land, but nothing is the same as it used to be. They rebuild a temple and don't do a terrific job. It doesn't feel like it used to feel. The, the glory of God doesn't rush into the temple the way it did the first time. And the prophets begin to speak of a new covenant, a new covenant that's coming. Jeremiah 31 says it's a new covenant that's going to be actually written, not on tablets of stone, but on, on our hearts. And then Jesus in Luke 22, verse 20, that what we commemorate and celebrate together every Sunday at the end of every service as we come to the Lord's table together, Jesus says that his death and resurrection inaugurate the new covenant. So we've seen this story grow and grow and grow and expand and expand as more and more is revealed to us about God's purposes. And Jesus is the culminating point. He is the point of the whole story. He's what everything is leading to in this new covenant that God is making in creating a people for himself, not just from the descendants of Abraham, but from every tribe and tongue and nation who, who he chooses by his grace, and they become sons of Abraham. It is a glorious, amazing story. And this is the mystery that Paul is unfolding for us. The, God's creation of a people for himself, a treasured possession for his glory. And, and we, friends, have been brought into that story. Paul's talking about us. What a glorious thing that is. What a humbling thing that is. But, but God acting in justice in, in hardening the Jews 
and in bringing the Gentiles to salvation does not mean that God has forsaken the Jews. Paul has made that clear. He's not done with them. He hasn't written them off. It just means that God decided to save the Gentiles, and the way he purposed to save the Gentiles, the means that he would use would be the sin of the Jews, the rebellion of the Jews, so that God could later save the Jews. Look at verse 12. If their trespass, he's speaking of the Jews here, means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentile. Again, they've been broken off because of their trespass from the tree, and new branches have been grafted into the tree. How much more will their fruit, what will their full inclusion mean? In other words, Paul says, don't write the Jews off. Don't judge God's intentions. Don't celebrate. Don't celebrate their hardening. Don't celebrate their unbelief. If it is a glorious thing that their sin led to salvation for you, then how much more glorious will their salvation be? That's what Paul's trying to drive home to us. Trying to give us that same, that same spirit as we've seen from Paul a couple times in these chapters as he thinks of his, his kinsmen, Israel, the Jews, and his heart is broken for them and he longs for their salvation. Paul is, is trying to tell us Christians we ought to feel that way too. God brought salvation to the Gentiles out of his discipline for, to, of the Jews, and he's going to bring salvation to the Jews through the Gentiles. He's going to graft them into the tree as well, as we have been grafted in, so, so they will be grafted in. It's the only way anyone is saved. You don't come into this by birth. So we must not judge God's actions by our human reason. We must not look at the way things are going around us and go, so God must be doing this or not doing this. We can't possibly conceive of all that God is doing in history. Frankly, we can't possibly conceive of all that God's doing in our lives. We, we may have, be in a season or have events in our lives that we think must mean God doesn't love me. All God's promises in his word are true, but I'm particularly awful and I think God has, has destined me for misery Friend, you, you don't know the mind of God. You can trust him. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known. This, this is how, how our sight is. It's dim. It's shadowy. We don't understand the eternal purposes of God. He sees the end from the beginning. He is working out his good plan. We are so limited, so finite. In the fourth century, the church father Augustine said, to be human is like having your face pressed against stained glass. You can see the colors, you can see the broken glass, but only God has the perspective to see the whole work of art. You cannot make sense of it. You cannot understand it. And the truth is, we often interpret God's actions incorrectly. And so Paul is warning us about rushing to conclusions, about making assumptions of God's purposes based on our own emotions and based on our own human reasoning and understanding, and instead to look to God's word for answers. Because what we see in God's word is actually his, his goodness in his justice. God is full of mercy. God is gracious 
and compassionate. He delights to save unworthy sinners. And so even as he pours his justice out, much deserved justice on the Israelites, it overflows in salvation for the Gentiles. And later, for the Jews. We see God's goodness even in the midst of his judgment, even in the midst of his justice. Isn't this what we see in the cross of Christ? God's goodness flowing out of his justice. God poured out his judgment on Christ, the greatest judgment of God in history. All of his wrath, eternal wrath, limitless wrath for every single one of his people who would ever live poured out on Christ. The greatest outpouring of wrath, the greatest judgment in the history of the world, and it resulted in the greatest salvation. So great a salvation we can't comprehend. The greatness of God saving to the uttermost his people. God's goodness is poured out even when he judges. The the only time, the only time in all of history where this will not be the case, where where there's not mercy mingled in with his judgment will be when he finally gives sin its final judgment on that last day. But but here we see the Jews being judged by God, receiving what they deserve, what their sin deserve. And yet God in his kindness turns it to our good and and the Gentile world experiences salvation. And God has even kept for himself, Paul told us, a remnant among the Jews, chosen by grace, Paul says, to be his people. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of God who seeks and saves sinners. We should be greatly encouraged by this. We shouldn't doubt how God is working or, or doubt his purposes. He can, he can take impossible situations and bring about salvation. He can take situations that to us look like the worst possible thing that could ever happen in all the world and, and we feel like God has abandoned us and God is working for our good. God is working to bring about salvation. For example, just look at God's active hardening of our generation in which we live. You can't look at the world we live in and see that this isn't something that's happening. Handing them over to their unbelief, handing them over to their own lust, such that our society is thoroughly pagan, thoroughly idolatrous, in complete and total rebellion against God. And although we see that with our eyes going on around us, we must not lose hope in God's wisdom and power, in God's goodness. To to even use these judgments that are are coming upon us right now as a double-edged sword, on one hand, to, to accomplish judgment on the world. God is glorified in his judgment. It is righteous judgment. It is pure judgment. It is good. And on the other hand, to bring to pass his saving purposes. To to see God act in this way, as Paul describes for us, what he is doing with Israel should remind us that the Christian response to an unbelieving world should not be to withdraw 
It should not be to cloister ourselves off apart from the world and have a a wall of separation built to keep them from, from sullying our pureness. No, it should be to take the gospel to this world. It should be to trust in God. It should be a faithful, hopeful witness. Yes, our eyes tell us things are hopeless out there, but God delights to save sinners of whom we were once. That's what Paul reminds the Gentiles. You were in unbelief, just like they are in unbelief. Don't don't judge them. You were them. It's the mercy of God that makes you any different from them. We, We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be pessimistic. Because even as God pours out his judgment, there is a remnant who he will save by his grace. God knows who are his people. And he will save them. Next we see God's sovereignty over sin as Paul continues in verse 13. I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In in other words, God's method for saving some of Israel will be by saving Gentiles, bringing them into the promises that have been unfolding in all of the Old Testament as as this revelation of God's creating a people for himself has, has been revealed to us. And as these Gentiles come into possession of these promises in which the Jews have been hoping, the Jews are going to see that and be provoked to jealousy, and God will save them. So so through the sin of jealousy, the Jews will be provoked to salvation. A, A few things we need to consider from this statement that Paul has just made. One, we should see just how big God is, just how sovereign he is, just how far beyond our imagination and our understanding he is. God is sovereign even over sin. Just like everything else, he uses it for his purposes. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says it like this, the almighty power, the unsearchable wisdom, The infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action, both of angels and human. God's providence over sinful action does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfect holy purposes. Yet, he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creature and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. The the, the confession is, what, what, what it's telling us is exactly how it is that God's in control. First, with a type of permission, but, but not, 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 it says, a simple or a bare permission. In other words, there's more going on than God simply allowing things to happen. There are creatures living on the earth, and God's hands are tied, 
Because of their free will, they're going to do what they want, and God will choose to allow it or not allow it. No, there's more going on than that here. God is hands-on. God is hands-on in bringing his, his purposes to, to come. He is ordaining. He is arranging all things. There's no unforeseen circumstance with God. God's never reacting to anything. There's no unfortunate collateral damage that God did not see coming. But don't get the wrong idea. He does not cause sin. God does not cause sin. He is not tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. He never approves of sin. What we saw last week in our passage was he works through secondary causes. He's not the one who causes the sin. That's that's exactly what Paul's been telling us in Romans 9 through 11. Second, note how jealousy is used by God to accomplish his purposes. Why, Why jealousy? Why would God work through jealousy to save the Jews? Well, because through jealousy, the Jews are going to come to value something they previously thought they didn't need. Oh, I hear the gospel proclaimed, and you're telling me that I must come to Christ to receive salvation by God's grace alone. Look, I don't need that. Abraham's my father. Look, I don't need that. I've got the law. I have no value for this whatsoever. Oh, but through jealousy, they would come to value salvation in Christ alone. They'd be made to want that which they previously despised. They'd see the Gentiles receiving what should have been theirs, and it would cause them to see their error, and they would want it. Think of those of you that have raised kids or spent any time around kids. You might have a kid. He's got this dirty, dusty toy that he hasn't touched in four and a half years. He's now 17. But he sees his little brother play with it, and he's like, how dare you? That is mine. I want nothing in the world more than to play with this Tonka truck right now. That's what we do. We're provoked. If we see someone having, it's why when we go anywhere where there's a line, people get squirrely, even if they're not in a hurry. I want what's coming to me. I want what's mine. There's a jealousy that erupts. I want the best seat. I want the best place in line. I want what's mine. I don't want someone getting something that I'm not getting, especially if I think I deserve that thing. And God says he will use that kind of thinking, that selfish, sinful thinking to provoke the Jews to desire something good and pure and beautiful, something that will actually transform that kind of thinking eventually. And so here's the challenge for us Christians Do you live your life in Christ in a way that makes people jealous? Do you live for Christ such that it would make other people jealous? Now, let's be very clear. We're not to flaunt our lives. We're not to seek to provoke envy or jealousy through some sort of sinful exhibitionism. We're not to sell the gospel and just appeal to felt needs so other people will look at us and go, look how great they're doing. I want what they've got. We're not to seek riches so that the world would be jealous. We renounce the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. We repudiate it. It is a wicked and evil and damnable false gospel. But what Paul means is the reality that when we live our lives in the richness of the gospel, the overflow is evident. 
It's evident in many ways. There will be a recognition, even in the heart of the unbeliever, that this is the truth. This, this is true. In other words, when we're living the genuine Christian life, there will be an attraction. There will be an aroma of life. There will be a salt and light which will cause God's chosen remnant to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the product of genuine Christians. Is it calls those whose God have chosen to, to desire these things. Jesus said in Matthew 5, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed and they will be satisfied. In other words, words in, in a world that is addicted to selfishness, in a world that is addicted to seeking happiness in things like sexual immorality and things like greed and in various forms of intoxication, in that world to actually find true happiness and satisfaction is a strange thing. And to find it in holiness, to find it in devotion to God, it is a powerful testimony to a watching world. When we have the joy of salvation in a world that can never be happy, that can never be satisfied, when we have the peace that surpasses understanding in a world that is filled with endless fear and anxiety, this speaks life, even to the hearts of unbelievers. They might mock us. They might scorn us. They might persecute us and tell us that we're stupid and naive. But in quiet, lonely moments, they desperately wish that they had what we have. That's the reality. As our lives demonstrate the gospel's power, to transform. As our lives show forth the gospel's beauty, God will use our lives to draw people to seek Christ. He will use our lives to reveal the vanity and emptiness of sin for what it really is, to, to provoke in people a desire for something of eternal weight, to open their ears to hear the gospel. And that last step is, is crucial for us to understand. That he will use our lives to open their ears to hear the gospel because our godly living in front of a watching world is not enough to save anybody. Our shining example of virtue and righteousness and devotion is not enough to save anyone. The fact that, that, that we're content in our lives and not selfish and greedy, it is not enough to save anyone. The fact that we, we have happy marriages and have raised loving, productive members of society as our kids, that is not enough to save anyone. St. Francis of Assisi is, is credited with saying, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. It's very dubious that he actually said that. It's a quote that people love. If he said it, he was wrong. That's an impossibility. That's an impossibility. The gospel is not a lifestyle. The gospel is a message. It's a message God has revealed to us of the sinless life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our sinfulness and need for a Savior, and of God's abounding mercy and power to save all who come to him in faith and repentance. 
It's a message that people must hear or no one will ever, ever, ever be saved. Your life does not preach the gospel. They need to hear the gospel and believe in order to receive the righteousness by which they can become justified. They need to receive Christ's righteousness, and they need to know that. Our lives do not preach the gospel, but they do commend the gospel. They do show forth the gospel's power. They do display the gospel's beauty. Third thing to note briefly, Paul speaks of God saving some of the Jews. There's a popular view that points to these verses as definitive proof of a massive end-time revival among the Jews where the vast majority of ethnic Israel will be saved. Now, there might be. That may happen. In fact, I believe that the gospel will win. I am optimistic about the gospel. I believe the gospel will win. So, yes, I believe before it's all said and done, a majority of Jews and Gentiles will be grafted in, will come to saving faith as the nations are converted and discipled. I think Jesus meant it when he gave the Great Commission. I don't think the Great Commission was, go out there, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. By the way, you will fail miserably. It will go from bad to worse. If your Bible has that in there, it's not original to the text. So yeah, I'm optimistic, but there's no textual evidence for that kind of revival in these verses. Paul's talking about his present ministry. And he talks about God saving some. He doesn't say most. He doesn't say all. He doesn't say anything about a national revival. And so we need to be careful about making promises on God's behalf. Let God's word say what it says. That that kind of thinking comes from a system that that people have put together to try and make sense of what's going to happen in the end times. Fourth, note that the Jews will experience, verse 15, life from death. I just point this out because Paul doesn't see two ways of salvation here. The only way anyone will be saved, he'll tell us later in this chapter, is to be grafted in. The Gentiles had to be grafted in and the Jews need to be grafted in. There's not two separate classes of people. There's not two separate kinds of people. There is one way of salvation. Every sinner needs to be regenerated, brought to life. Every sinner needs to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That is the only way to be saved. This, again, is not a statement of future revival in Israel. Contextually, it is about the the gospel reality that the Jews who have sinned so greatly in the past, and there is this dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. It started with the Jews aimed at the Gentiles, and now it is in the Gentiles aimed at the Jews. The point here is that dividing wall of hostility is torn down as we're all grafted into the same tree. As this story has unfolded that started with Adam, that went through Abraham, as this story has unfolded, we've all now been grafted into that story and it's the only way you get in. Nobody's born into that story. We're grafted in and because of that, no one is a second class Christian. No matter what your sin was, And so Paul's correcting faulty assumptions of God's motive as it relates to the hardening of Israel. And Paul says this 
This remnant chosen by grace, they are co-heirs with Christ. They should be the cause of great rejoicing for us. As this ethnic people with whom God began this grand story that revealed itself to be much, much larger than one ethnic people. Oh, but that this people would be grafted back into this story. How glorious. What a cause for celebration of God's power and God's mercy. We should remind ourselves that we ought not be presumptuous about God's motives. Instead, we should marvel at his working. We should marvel at the mystery of God's working. He is big. He is so much bigger than we are. He's so far beyond our understanding. God does the unexpected. God saves sinners. This is cause for celebration. Even in the outpouring of his justice, he saves. This is a sign of his goodness and his grace and his mercy and We rejoice in God's sovereignty over all things, working in and through all things. Even the sins of man. Even the hardening of man. He's working in and through all things and using them as instruments of his mercy to bring us to Christ. That's why Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, That God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's using all things as an instrument of his mercy to his chosen remnant, chosen by grace. That's us, Christian. Oh, this is cause for hope and assurance and rejoicing and peace. Let me just close with Paul's worshipful celebration of these deep truths he's revealed for three chapters. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this revelation. Lord, we could not know you apart from this. Lord, but you have revealed to us your good purposes in all of creation, in all of eternity. And Lord, though though we are left astounded, though we are left feeling like we are bobbing in the middle of a vast ocean of the depth of who you are. Lord, we rejoice in you. We rest in you. We trust in you. I pray, God, that just as, 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 as you have revealed here in this passage that you have saving purposes yet for the worst of sinners, I pray, God, that Lord, any who are hearing my voice right now that are far from you, whose hearts are hard, maybe perhaps like the Jews, they they think they are already possessors of salvation, and yet, Lord, you who know their hearts, know that they are far from you in rebellion. Lord, I pray in your mercy that you would save them. I pray in your kindness by your spirit that you would convict them, unsettle them. Lord, even cause them to to see their desperate condition and fear that they would run to you. 
the author of faith, the finisher of faith. Pray, Lord, that you would save them, make them your own, that they would come into all of these glorious and astounding promises. And I pray for us, Lord, your church, that you would make us faithful. Give us boldness. Give us courage to take this gospel to the world. Though they may be hostile, though they may call us names and threaten us, though they may just mock us, whatever it is, Lord, would you put steel in our spine, gospel steel, that, that, that we would rest so secure in these promises that we would entrust all of ourselves to you and live for you and for your glory. Lord, I pray you'd make this church, Maple Grove Church, strong and faithful to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.